You are listening to a parish podcast, a reimagined faith community. There were two traveling monks who reached a river when they met a young woman. Wary of the current, she asked if they could help carry her across. One of the monks hesitated, but the other quickly picked her up onto his shoulders and he transported her across the water. He set her down on the other side, where she thanked him, and they departed. And as the monks continued on their way, the one was brooding and preoccupied, unable to hold his silence. He eventually speaks out, and he says, Brother, our spiritual training teaches us to avoid any contact with women, but you picked her up on your shoulders, and you carried her. The second monk replied, Brother, I set her down on the other side of that river at least an hour ago. Why are you still carrying her? This is a great teaching parable that begs this question. How much of what we carry is actually ours to hold? How heavy must some of us feel when we can't let go of things said, or things done, or even of things thought? Learning to set down what isn't ours to carry, it sounds easy, but we get trapped in our thinking, and sometimes it seems that we need a loving voice of authority to remind us that we can be free. I know that's hard for us to imagine. Why do we need someone else to tell us that? It's just sometimes we need permission to get out of our own heads. And if it isn't a person of authority in our life, why would we listen? But if they're not loving, then why do they have any authority? But when the two come together, loving authority, man, there's freedom. And we all have those loving voices of authority in our lives. At least I hope we do. And I hope we understand that we also are those loving voices of authority in someone else's life. At least I hope we are. Let me read an account from Mark's biography of Jesus. It's a story about a man paralyzed that's brought to him. Um, most of us have heard this story before. Jan mentioned it last week in her message, and it, it got me reading it one more time, which made me want to talk about it. Let's look at what Jesus does in this account, how Mark records it. And here's the thing. This is an account that I would have understood differently eight years ago, before my own wife became a paraplegic. It's a ridiculous story. All the good ones are. Otherwise, there's no need to write them down. So let's read it together from Mark chapter 2. He records it this way. He says, when Jesus re-entered Capernaum some days later, a rumor spread that he was in somebody's house. And such a large crowd collected that while he was giving them his message, it was impossible to even get near the doorway. Meanwhile, a group of people arrived to see him, bringing with them a paralytic who four of them were carrying on a bed. And when they found that it was impossible to get near the door because of the crowd, they removed the tiles from the roof over Jesus' head and they let him down. They lowered the paralytic's bed through the opening in the ceiling. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man on the bed, My son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes who were sitting there silently asking themselves, Why does this man talk such blasphemy? Who can possibly forgive sins but God? Jesus realized instantly what they were thinking. And he said to them, Why must you argue like this in your minds? Which do you suppose is easier to say to a paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, or get up? pick up your bed and walk. But to prove to you that the Son of Man has full authority to forgive sins on earth, I say to you, 
And here, he spoke to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And at once, the man sprang to his feet. He picked up his bed and he walked, off in full view in front of them all. Everyone was amazed, praising God, and said, we have never seen anything like this before. Now, this man is suffering from some sort of paralyzing illness. He's carried by four of his friends to a location where Jesus is teaching, but it's jam-packed. So they lower the mat through the ceiling, and he comes to rest at the feet of Jesus. To say this wasn't a desperate attempt is to misunderstand desperation. I can only imagine what would drive someone to climb onto a roof with a friend unable to walk. The boldness demonstrated here by cutting a hole in the ceiling of someone else's house and thinking it's all okay is so inspiring. Just as shocking as the renovation is the poor man gets lowered into this house to the gaze of a multitude, homeowner included. I picture Jesus in the middle of his teaching, straw and mud sprinkling down in front of him, then chunks, then daylight, then some sort of bed with a man on ropes. He must be tied to this bed, and he's being lowered down in front of Jesus. I just see him spinning. Talk about drama. There must have been several minutes of absolute silence as people, including Jesus, were wondering, what is happening here? It's kind of a funny thought. It doesn't matter how many people bring you to Jesus. In the end, it's still you and him face to face. And here's this poor guy swinging from the ceiling, looking at Jesus. I'm wondering if he's saying, sorry about this, but uh, I couldn't get in. And after noticing the faith of these individuals, Jesus breaks the silence with his outrageous statement, your sins are forgiven. What sort of sins does a mattress-bound paralytic find themselves involved in? And why is he the only one in need of his sins forgiven? And why does Jesus offer him forgiveness? He doesn't ask for it. There's no repentance here. I'm confused. Now, normally we wouldn't get bogged down with these questions because there's a satisfying interpretation of this passage. We hear it all the time. Bring your sick to Jesus and he'll heal them. There. Done. Thanks for coming out, everybody. But that interpretation is only satisfying if you are the four healthy friends or the person carrying your bed home. What hope does this story hold for those who've brought our paralyzed loved ones to Jesus and she hasn't been healed? You either abandon the story or you dig deeper. Perhaps the odd moments in this story regarding the faith of the friends and the unsolicited forgiveness are clues of something far deeper here. Let's first understand the idea of sin in the Gospels. There are over 10 different words for sin in the New Testament, in Greek, spanning from words that describe transgression, words that describe disobedience, or words that, are, that uh, describe being unjust or rebellion. You've heard me say many times that the word hamartia, the Greek word, is the most important uh, word used. It's the most popular, and it means to miss the mark, like an archer shooting at a target, to make a mistake, to fall to the side. It does not include the idea of deliberately missing the mark. There are other words for those attitudes. The word here used regarding this man is this one. He has fallen to the side. Now let's understand the first century concept of sickness. If you were sick, it was assumed that it was punishment for something you'd done or didn't do, intentionally or unintentionally. And if not you, then maybe it was your parents who sinned, and and that's why you were born with sickness or with an ailment. 
This is demonstrated in a conversation we read about in John's biography, chapter 9, verse 2. The disciples come across a blind man and they ask Jesus, Hey, who sinned, that man or his parents, that he was born like this? Who missed the mark, they were saying? Who wasn't good enough, they're asking. It's a common notion in this culture. And Jesus dispels the smith by saying, neither. So someone who was sick chronically like this man on this bed would be the subject of a lot of talk, both outside and inside his head. Times haven't changed, have they? And maybe even more so because this was most likely invisible. The word used to describe this man's ailment is more of an illness than a disease. The difference is a disease is purely medical, biological, but an illness, while it may include that, has social and spiritual implications and may not actually include disease. I talked a bit about this a couple of weeks ago in, in a sermon about the leper who was made whole, not just healed. A couple of years ago, we did a month of messages on mental health and faith, and the messages were delivered by those here in the parish who knew the subject matter really well. Mental health is a great example of an illness. It affects us socially and spiritually and even physically, yet may not be connected to disease. But it's just as debilitating. You see, I think it's important for us to understand here that there are many illnesses that can trap us to our beds. This problem hasn't gone away in 2,000 years. Depression, anxiety, fear, guilt, shame, all can be paralyzing. They can find us trapped in our proverbial beds. And I, I can't believe how many people are struggling with whether it's addiction or shame or guilt because of what has been done to them, even as children. Not because of their own disobedience, but because the actions of others have paralyzed them, caused them to miss the mark, to fall to the side. My personal take on this story is that this man is being freed from a long-held but wrong belief that sickness and disease must be a result of his own failures and mistakes. When Jesus tells the man he's forgiven, he is setting him free from the superstition that he has done something to deserve his predicament. You see, the Greek word forgiven literally means to leave behind, to let go, to keep no longer. It's possible that Jesus is telling this man to leave behind the beliefs that have paralyzed him. Now, some people are more paralyzed by belief than freed by it. We all know those people. Their lives have become smaller because of what they believed, not bigger. And in dispelling the myth, it's almost as if Jesus is saying to this man, if there's no sin to afflict you, why are you still on the mat? Get up and walk. And I can only imagine that this man believed his whole life about himself. I can also imagine the depression, the stress, the anxiety that he would have experienced. These words mean more to him than to any bystander in the room. There's no question to me that this man would have looked at his condition and seen it as limiting. He must have begun to believe that he was worthless. And I'm sure he had tried to confess everything he'd ever done to no avail. I am sure he second-guessed himself as others would have judged him by his circumstance. He would soon judge himself by his chronic affliction. Those are dangerous moments when we begin to believe the rhetoric others tell us. Even more dangerous than the lies that we tell are the ones that we believe. Many were amazed by his ability to walk, the biography tells us. 
How many would give up their legs to feel free? To be released from the disappointment of not being enough. Free from the conflicting circle of trying to figure out what you did wrong to deserve this. A couple of years ago, I received a phone call from an older gentleman who travels from church to church, praying for pastors in the area. And the last time I spoke to him, he asked if we could meet at the parish here and if he could pray for me. I said, sure, why not? So we met here. I didn't know him, but we met here and we prayed together. And it was actually quite beautiful. And then he asked me about my family because he had never met me before. And so I told him about my family and I told him that my wife has been paralyzed for a couple of years from an autoimmune disease. And he looked at me shocked. I said, what's the matter? And he said to me that that can't be God's will. And he went on to tell me of how my wife is supposed to be healed. The problem with this thinking is that if God's not the problem then, and he can't be the problem, then is my wife the problem? Am I the problem? Do you see, I found myself confronted by the same unhealthy thinking of the first century. Whose lack of faith is it? Whose sin is it? Like I said, this story preaches as a model for healing until you aren't healed. Then you either abandon this story altogether, or you dig deeper. I wanted to look this man in the eyes and tell him that my wife is more whole now than she was when she could walk. And I I didn't expect him to understand that. So many people have given up on life because they found their affliction too great and the burden of wondering what they've done to deserve it even greater. What if that second burden could be lifted? If they could be broken yet whole? The truth is many broken people have gone on to inspire the world with their lives and many able-bottled people Able-bodied people have gone on to waste a beautiful life. In that John 9 passage where the disciples see that blind man, and they ask why the blind man was born blind, and Jesus says it wasn't a result of sin. Instead, he actually says this. He says it was so that the works of God might be displayed in his life. Now, we assume that the works of God was in his healing, but what if it was in his living in spite of his impairment? that displayed his faith, the works of God. In that account, we're not told that the man was begging or asked to be healed. One of the works of God may have included his healing, but may have also included his living while alive, living full while still physically being broken. Where would this world be if we didn't have the fruit of all those who suffered and struggled and persevered in spite of their circumstances, who inspired four men to carry a bed with its occupant onto a roof, obviously this man had an impact on his friends. He was loved, so much so they put so much effort into taking him here. Who, who knows whose idea this was? It doesn't matter. I think too often we miss what God does because of how God does it. But make no mistake. This isn't a story about a lame man walking. This is a story about a man who entered a room feeling trapped by the mat he laid on. More paralyzed by his belief than he was freed by it. And when he left, it wasn't just his belief in God that made him whole. It was that he knew God believed in him. And I think we miss 
what God does because of how God does it. This man's sin was believing that this mat was all he could ever be. And his liberation was understanding that no, he was made for more. So here's my prayer for us. Heavenly Father, free us today from the ideas that are holding us back. Free us from the beliefs that somehow we will always be behind. Free us from the lies that we've believed about you, the lies we've believed about us. And show us how to live where we are. Show us how to, how to have a full life regardless of what we've experienced. And for all those hearts and souls and minds that find themselves paralyzed on a mat, can we hear you say, be free from what you think is holding you back? And can those words encourage us, motivate us to leave behind that, that which we no longer have to carry? And may we hear you say to us, rise and be more than you've believed. And may we find your healing where it matters the most. 